Hey, well, good morning again, and thank you for being here. What a wonderful morning. I am encouraged. It's a very special day, as was already mentioned. It is Groundhog's Day, and it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I was informed uh, that it is Palindrome Day. And after having asked and been explained what a palindrome is, um, uh, I, I, I now know uh, it's that the date is the same forward and backwards. How often does that happen, Chris? Do you know? Once a century. All right. So it's a very special Sunday, as you can see. Uh, so Jesus, he had 12 apostles. And uh, my favorite amongst those 12 apostles was a man named Peter. Uh, have you ever heard the expression, um, uh, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission? Peter kind of lived life in that sort of way. Like, he was the one to take action. He was the one to dive out of the boat to be, to be at Jesus' feet. He was the one uh, to pull out his sword and try to defend Jesus, even when that was not the right thing to be doing in that moment. But he was a man who took action quickly. We're blessed to um, have a number of letters in the New Testament that Peter wrote to followers of Jesus in the first century. And for the last little while, we've been studying the book of First Peter. Um, the, the overarching subject of the book is living hope, and he is inviting people uh, to know Jesus in remarkable ways. Um, he, he speaks to a number of things in this book of First Peter about um, living holy lives, about living lives that impact others in remarkable ways, that through the ways we live, through the ways we suffer, uh, even injustice in our lives, that people will come to know the God that we serve. Um, and finally, he speaks to the suffering that, that Christians in the first century were experiencing. But he points people towards a living hope. This man, Peter, who walked with Jesus, who experienced his crucifixion, who witnessed the resurrection, who then went on to be a leader in the first century church, he writes this letter uh, to followers of Jesus saying, this is what life can look like when walking with Jesus. And so today we hear his final thoughts. We hear the conclusion to the letter of First Peter, and we have a good bit of text, so let's dive in. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock." And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family, um, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, 
firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So in this final section, we look at actually three messages that Peter has. He has a message to elders, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that message is and and what it means. Uh, And then he addresses young people, and I don't know if you noticed, but he has only one sentence for the young people. He knows they have short attention spans. And And then third, he addresses all people, okay? So we're going to look through this text today and explore what did it mean in the first century and what does it mean to us today as followers of Jesus. First, he speaks to elders. Now, the elders in Israelite culture were the leaders. Um, uh, They were respected people. Um, They were the leaders in the church. They were leaders in the community. Uh, And so he uses here this term, elders. He says, elders, um, as witnesses of Christ, um, uh, you will uh, share in the glory that is to be received. He says, he calls these elders shepherds. And shepherd's an interesting term. I've had a few people call me out over the years saying, I really don't like the term shepherd because I don't like being thought of as a sheep, right? I can kind of understand the complaint there. Um, but I think there's something interesting that actually I'd never noticed until this week as I was looking at this text and, and studying this week. Um, there's this, there's this analogy drawn between leaders in Israelite, elders, uh, and, and shepherds. But what's interesting to me is shepherds were not a revered people in the first century. This was not a, a, a trade or, or a lifestyle that people wanted to go into. These are people that lived on the outskirts of town, traveling from place to place with animals. They were stinky, uh, and, and they were not highly revered people. So I think it's really interesting that the analogy here uh, is drawn between elders, leaders, rulers, and a people that is not highly revered. It, it was not a position of power. It was not a position that demanded a ton of respect. I wonder if Peter were writing this letter today, uh, what he would equate that to. I don't know. I was thinking about um, like a garbage man or something like that, a job that's desperately needed and appreciated within a community, but not a position of power or something highly revered. And I don't know if he were speaking to the garbage man that comes to my house, he would say, be a good garbage man and stack the recycle bins on windy days so they don't blow and hit neighbors' cars, you know. I don't know. But he, he uses, uh, he draws this analogy between the leaders and a, a pretty menial position in society. And I think that's intentional. As he goes on to describe it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, so he says, watch over your people, care for them. And as we consider this conversation about elders or leaders in the church or leaders in a community, I do want to reflect on the fact that each of us leads in some way, shape, or form. And I think there's a word here for us, uh, something that applies in our lives. How will we lead in our households? How will we lead in our jobs and our positions? How will we lead in the church? Absolutely applies to the conversation as well. But I want to explore this concept um, for all of us, because in some way, shape, or form, each of us is leading. So he says this, in whatever capacity you're leading, um, Care deeply for the people that are, uh, that are underneath you. He clarifies here in the text uh, that this is not your own flock, but it is in fact God's. So in the context of the church, as he speaks to elders, he says, recognize that these are not your own, but care deeply for these people, realizing that they are God's people and you have been entrusted with their care. 
He goes on, um, do so because you're willing and not out of obligation. As we lead and as we serve and as we engage both in church and in our day-to-day lives, he says, do so not uh, out of obligation, but instead because you're willing. Now, I think each of us has probably experienced the difference in a person or an employee who is uh, serving or engaging out of love and compassion versus the one doing it out of obligation. Uh, I don't know if your story went much like mine, but it might have. You're 16 years old, and it is finally time to get your driver's license, right? And so you walk into the DMV, and you take a ticket, or you wait for your number to be called, uh, and 45 minutes or three hours later, who knows, you walk up to the counter, and the grouchiest person you have ever met greets you right? And eventually, having waded through all of the things at the desk, uh, you're paired up with a driving instructor who sits in the car, uh, works hard on maintaining the frown on his face while he marks off as many points as he can as you do your drive, right? This is, a, this is a person, this is an experience operating out of obligation. And I wonder if sometimes as we serve in the church or as we lead in our workplaces in capacity, uh, sometimes we are more like this person, leading out of obligation, out of frustration, out of disappointment, allowing the weight of the world to creep into the ways that we engage with the people that we are leading. I know it happens in my household. I know it happens in my life and my work as well. He says, but don't do it out of obligation. Instead, choose a a willing spirit and be eager to serve, he tells us, not seeking personal gain or not lording your power over people. Uh, you know, often we think of leadership roles as those that come with power, right? So we might think of these high positions, um, CEOs of businesses or politicians, right? These are leaders and they, uh, and they hold positions of power. But remember, that's not at all what Peter is describing here. He's, he refers to the elders as shepherds, not revered or powerful people in the first century. He says, so enter this role of leadership with humility, right? Enter this role of leadership with a spirit of service, with a spirit of love for the people that you are going to lead. Don't lord your power over them. Don't seek personal gain, but instead lead out of love and out of service. And finally, he says, set an example for people. You know, uh, I have seen um, both the... uh, leadership or engagement out of obligation at the DMV, and then I have seen the leadership born of love and of service. Uh, A number of years ago, Sarah and I, um, I was a youth pastor of 12 years, and uh, Sarah was teaching third grade, and we knew that God was calling us to a next step, and we didn't know exactly what that looked like or what we were being called to, and and so we're in a season of praying, and we heard about this church planting organization called Kairos, and they had a discovery lab, and discovery lab is this kind of boot camp for potential church planters, right? They, they, uh, they, they put you through a lot. You fill out all these inventories and surveys about marital health and spiritual giftedness and financial health, and they look into all sorts of aspects of life. And then you get to this week-long event, you and your spouse, and uh, they had 12 interviewers there, every, everyone from uh, leaders in the church planning organization to current church planners to licensed therapists. And uh, for a week, uh, you're kind of under the spotlight. And what could have been the most terrifying experience of of our lives uh, ended up 
not to be that at all. And there was two reasons. One was ignorance. Um, so we went into this church planting thing, uh, just curious, like, what is this? And is, I, I mean, is there actually a pathway to do something like that? So we attended this conference, um, paired with all sorts of other people already engaged in church planting, already raising funds and already committed to starting this journey. Well, Sarah and I are just walking around the place like, do, 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 you know, this is kind of fun. And what's church planting all about? So part of the reason it was a great experience was because, uh, we didn't come with all the anxiety of having to hear yes, right? But the other reason it was uh, amazing is because we experienced leaders like this, like Peter describes in this text. We experienced people that desired to look deeply into our lives, not to criticize, but instead to speak truth, honesty both in the good and the bad, an invitation to how growth might take place in other areas. By the end of it, um, we, uh, the, Kairos says, uh, yeah, we, we want to plant a church with you. We, th- we think you're ready to, to plant. And uh, we said, oh, my goodness, that, we weren't asking to plant a church. We just wanted to know what this is all about. And we walked away. And um, it was about a month later that God uh, really began to, to bring clarity in, in calling. And we began that journey. Now, what, five years ago? Um, so it was a beautiful thing. But I have experienced this kind of leadership. And Peter says, um, invest intentionally in the lives of people. Care deeply for them. Don't operate out of obligation, but out of love and out of service towards other people. That was his first message for us today. And finally, he he mentions in verse 4, by the way, um, when the chief shepherd appears, he refers to Jesus as a shepherd. This is not new language to the Israelite people. In fact, Jesus himself referred to uh, himself as a shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. I, I love this because shepherds, they're not revered people. And Jesus is like, but I'm the good one. Uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is, is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when the, he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not in this pen. Um, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus speaking says, I am the good shepherd. I will give my life for the sheep. I care deeply for them. And I think Peter references this because he's asking us to live and to serve and to love and to lead in a way that says, I care deeply about these people. So instead of obligation, I will choose love and service in the lives of others. I think this message applies not just to those of us leading in some sort of church capacity, but in our households and our workplaces and throughout our lives. Will we choose to serve and to live a life of love? Peter goes on and he speaks to young people. Again, just one sentence. So if you're young, uh, tune in with me for one sentence. He says in the same way, uh, you You who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Can I just say, this is kind of a lost art in our culture, right? The idea of submitting or showing deep respect and reverence for people that are older than ourselves. Um, 
you know, I think there's something beautiful in it, but I think it's a stretch for us. Many of us growing up, our highest aspiration was to move out of the house and to be independent right? And then for me, a season of life comes where you have children, and all of a sudden you look back to your parents in new ways, saying, I need and desire the mentorship and the guidance. And Peter challenges here, young people choose this posture from the beginning, this posture of learning from and respecting those that have come before you. And I believe this, um, there is um, a level of experience in these people. There is a richness and an opportunity in living in relationship with the generations that come before us. And I think this applies to all of us. Um, well, we could speak of age as the primary uh, conversation or factor in who would be our elder or the people that we would look up to. Um, I think it applies to all of us of any age. Uh, a challenge here is that we would choose to find people in our lives that will speak truth in love into them that we would place ourselves under other people that we can learn and grow, not to live as an island, not to live uh, in, in ways convinced or not to live convinced of our own ability or our own knowledge, but instead to live in relationship, uh, both in roles of leadership, as we talked about a moment ago, but also in roles of submission to other people in our lives. You know, I think some of the most dangerous seasons of lives of life is are those where we go at it alone, right? Where we go at it convinced that I have this under control or I know what is right. Uh, I think in both of these, I see an invitation to relationship. And finally, in our text, Peter speaks to all people. He speaks to all of the first century readers of this letter and to us here today. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. He'll go on to say, clothe yourself with humility towards people, and he'll go on in a moment to say, and humble yourselves before God. Choose humility. You know, we um, we clothe ourselves or uh, disguise ourselves in many ways as we walk through life, in our workplaces or in the places that we frequent. Um, we put on these personas of power, of self-sufficiency, right? We always want to project these incredibly positive and powerful traits. And yet here he says, clothe yourself, let people see in you and on you, humility. I think humility sometimes gets a bad rap. We think of it in terms of um, self-deprecating or lowliness, right? And there is some aspect of lowliness to humility, but I believe it's much more than that, and I believe it's much more beautiful than that. Jesus throughout his life personifies humility, right? When he would, uh, he, he took lowly followers, not the elites of society, but ordinary men, fishermen, and, and, uh, tax collectors. And he says, come and follow me. And they would walk from village to village, nothing spectacular. He didn't have any possessions or wealth to his name. And as they'd travel from town to town, he'd teach. 
about ordinary things around him, but in them bring out principles about the kingdom of heaven. And he'd enter a village and kids would flock around him. And kids in the first century were only valuable once old enough to work the family trade. And yet Jesus would get down on one knee and he'd place a child on his other knee and look them in the eye and elevate them in the eyes of the people around him. Jesus lived a humble life. And maybe most poignantly, uh, just before his crucifixion, he's sitting with his apostles, and they're having an argument about who's going to be most powerful in this new kingdom that Jesus will usher in, right? Who's going to sit at his right hand and his left hand? And Jesus says, I'll show you what power looks like. And he gets down on his knees, and he washes their feet. He says, this is what power looks like in my kingdom. It is love and it is service. So in the same way, Peter, whose feet was washed on that very day by Jesus, says, all of you, choose to clothe yourself not with pride and not with power, but instead with humility as Jesus walked on earth. True humility. Uh, I was reading and, and researching this concept, and I really liked this this idea this last week, is knowing who you are, no more, no less. Humility is knowing who you are, no more or no less. And as this plays out in our lives, I think a number of things develop. Um, it often will eliminate comparison. I know who I am and I have confidence in that, not more and not less. And as I scroll through my Instagram or Facebook feed or whatever you use, I don't even know the new ones out there, so I won't mention them. Uh, whatever that is, I don't have to compare my life to theirs, their vacations to my vacations or their experiences to mine. Those are not important to me, but in humility, I know who I am and it eliminates a need for all that comparison. And secondly, I think humility, knowing who we are, no more, no less, enables us to live in deeper relationship. You know, the deeper a relationship goes, uh, the more vulnerable we become to harm. And it is in humility, knowing who I am, that uh, whether I'm, I've been wronged or I have harmed my wife, I am able to say, I know who I am. I know my flaws and my weaknesses. I'm able to find a, a, a posture of love and support. I'm able to apologize for my part in things as we learn to live humbly, knowing who we are, no more and no less. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful quote. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And this really is the thrust of Peter's final thoughts here. He says, instead of thinking so much of yourself, in humility, start to look towards others. Live humbly in your posture with other people and live humbly towards God. He he makes a link in here between humility and anxiety. He says, cast your anxiety on God because he cares for you. What what do you often find yourself casting your anxiety on? Is it uh, excessive food or drink? Is it um, does it affect your relationships and the ways that you communicate with people around you? We all have anxiety, and what does it often drive us towards? Peter's recommendation is that it drives us towards God, 
who will bear our burdens, that we not bear them alone, but cast your anxieties on him. And I think it's in humility that we cease to convince ourselves that I can handle all of this. It's in humility that we turn to God saying, I am in need of your participation, of your help, of your care and concern in my life. And cast our burdens, our anxieties on him because, as Peter said, he cares for you. He says, be alert and of sober mind so that you can resist the devil who prowls about. And I I think it was last week in the text, we talked about the sober mind, kind of a, kind of an interesting, um, play on words that he's working with here. And, um, we mentioned, you know, it's, uh, in, it's, it's not living a life, you know, on the seat of a four wheeler at the drop of a hat ready to say to your friend, Hey, hold my beer. Cause here I go. Right. He says, no, instead live intentionally. Right. Uh, he says, live with sober mind, live intentionally, uh, with your eyes open, alert to what is happening around you. And it is in this alertness that we're able to resist the devil, that we're able to resist evil in this world, that we can stand firm in our faith. Now, there will be suffering in our lives, as he's addressed many times throughout the letter. But in this alertness, we're able both to resist evil and we're able to be aware that God is our restoration and our hope. In seasons of suffering, of trials or struggles in life, in seasons in which we've been wronged or harmed, when we feel weak or alone, the invitation that Peter offers here is a God who cares for us who is restoring us and bringing to our lives a living hope. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, God himself will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. If that's you this morning, um, feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders, the anxieties, the frustrations, or the fears that so often overwhelm us, I hope you hear those words from Peter, that God himself will restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's my prayer for you this morning. So today we conclude this series on living hope, and I want to rewind just a little bit back to the beginning. I want to hear about this hope that he concludes with again. He says in these relationships, whether you're in authority as an elder, whether you're young, or to all of you, he says, live life humbly. Live life in relationship with each other and with God, humbly knowing that God is your hope. So we'll go back. First Peter, uh, verse one, three, he said, praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is yours. That is yours today. New hope, living hope, new birth through Jesus' resurrection. He continues in verse 13 of the first chapter, Therefore, with minds that are alert and again fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Friends, we have hope. Uh, The invitation today is to a living hope. That Jesus rose from the dead, he lives, and we have living hope. 
a Savior, the Spirit that walks with us from day to day that we are not alone, but we have hope. And this is that living hope. It is relationship. It is relationship with people. As we walk humbly together, we find that hope that God is offering. And relationship with God, as we walk hand in hand with him through life, we continue to find this living hope. That in the best of times or in the worst of times, we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. So in our relationships today in our text, Peter challenged us challenged us to, the, to this. In your leadership roles, show concern for other people. In uh, your roles uh, as a youth or under other people, choose humility. Seek people that you can follow and learn from. Choose to submit yourself to people um, deserving of that respect and that role in your life. And finally, he says, clothe yourself in humility and trust in God, who is your hope. Let's pray about that. God, I thank you for this day and this time, and I thank you for Peter, uh, a man um, full of energy and excitement, uh, spontaneity, um, who came to know Jesus, who walked with him, who saw him crucified and then raised from the dead. And God, I thank you for um, an opportunity today to hear his words about what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. God, will you teach us um, to know hope? God, will you just enlighten us with this hope that you have offered, that in good times and in bad, that we are not alone, that we can walk humbly with each other, that we can know your love and your presence in the best of times and in the worst. God, allow us to know and to live into this hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, we will close with just this brief words. In fact, the final words that he spoke in the text. So in all that we do and in all the world, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Have a blessed week.